Father in heaven, we're grateful to be here in your presence. We want to sharpen our tools and be as effective as we possibly can in your service. So I pray that this time would be blessed of heaven to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. We produced a, uh, a card to uh, mail out. Should this be plugged in? Yeah, I should be plugged in. To mail out a Bible study. It was a Bible study inv- invitation card. Is that what I'm Am I calling it the right thing? Yeah, the mega mailer. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, we've, we've experienced a miracle with this mega mailer. So we, were, we printed up um, thousands of these. And then we discovered that a mistake had been made, which wasn't good. It was too big. Uh, well, bigger than we had planned. And you know, when you're mailing stuff, the bigger it gets, the more, hey there, the more expensive it gets. And so uh, we say to ourselves, well, maybe we should not do this because now it's going to cost a whole lot more to mail. Although an alternative would be to throw them in the trash and print again. So either way, it's going to cost more money, the cost of reprinting or the cost of mailing more mailers. So we just said to ourselves, ah, let's mail them again. Uh, uh, sorry, let's just mail them as is and we'll eat the extra postage cost. So that was a little scary. <clears throat> no one was very happy about that. Ordinarily, if you mail out something like this, you'll get back one per thousand. Frankly, that's not bad. If you've got 10,000 addresses and you can get 10 these are people writing back saying, I want to study the Bible. So if you can get 10, I think that's okay. If you've got 100,000, you get 100 of these back, that's all right too. Uh, if your mailing goes well, it comes back at 2 per thousand. My friend Pastor Tom said, I said, well, what would 3 per thousand be? And he waved his hands in the air like this and he said, hallelujah. 3 per thousand would be hallelujah. It happens, not often. And you're going to say, well, I heard about this one, I got five per thousand. Yeah, that happens too. It just doesn't happen very often. The average, uh, average 1.2 per thousand, 1 per thousand. Well, we mailed these out and we're blessed to discover that after having mailed out a million of these, we're getting back 10 per thousand. Amen. That's after a million of them. That's not after one mailing or two mailings or three mailings, but that's after mailing out a million, 10 per thousand, which is pretty spectacular. We've had churches... We had a church mail out 136 of them and get back 31 Bible study requests. They had a problem. They, they didn't know how to follow up 31 Bible study requests. A church, uh, <clears throat> another church that I can think of mailed this out and had, again, way more Bible studies. They issued a Macedonian cry to people to come and help them do the Bible studies. It's a, it's a pleasant problem to have. Um, and uh, a church in North Carolina operating an It Is Written Bible School through this uh, is currently studying the Bible with more than 170 people in their community. That's okay. And, and this operates a little bit differently. Um, correspondence Bible schools are good. I mean, I believe in them. I think they're good. They're really good. But here's what happens. You mail to your community. They mail to us. We study the Bible with your people. That really works for you. You don't even know who's studying. We'll tell you how many, but that's it. And then when you get to the Sabbath question, you're going to lose some. When you get to the state of the dead, you're going to lose some. So all we'll tell you is, uh, well, we started with 50 people from your town, and then we got down to 40, and now we're down to 18. Who are those 32 people? Well, we can dig up their names if you like. It's not bad. It works. Many people have come to faith in God like that. It's valid, but I don't think it's best. 
Here's what I think works better. I think the It Is Written Bible School works infinitely better. Because what happens is you get 50 names back. We get, you mail them. They come to us, or we mail them, really. They come to us. We package them up and send them to you. And then you go and knock on their door. Hi, I'm here with your Bible study request. Of course, some people are going to say, oh, I thought this was through the mail. And then you're going to say something like, well, we wanted to make sure you got these, and we believe in, in, in exceeding your expectations. I just want to drop these with you and wish you well. And then you carry on from there. Uh, so it's working great. Ten per thousand, there's nothing else out there that gets even close. It's true. Now, I know that with Grow Michigan, you may already be on a, on a, on a plan, on a trajectory. You may have other things that, you, that are prescribed or that you're doing. But we want you to know about this because this is shooting the lights out. We've, I've never seen anything like this in more than 20 years of ministry. It is a blessing. Uh, you know, the guy who invented silly putty tipped something over in the lab and discovered it had made silly putty, and this is, this is kind of the same. A mistake was made. I don't even know if it was made by us or by the printer. I don't want to find out. But we just ran with it, and God has blessed. All right, we started, didn't we? We prayed. <clears throat> We will talk about overcoming objections. If, uh, this, is like the, this is like the wall separating the United States from Mexico. I mean, it exists, but, but look, you can just do that. <laughs> but it very definitely exists. You like that? Uh, Overcoming objections. You should expect objections and do not be afraid of them. I had a couple whose name were Monica and Charles years ago in an evangelistic series. They came to me and they said, we cannot be baptized. We cannot join this church. Why not? Because our friend has told us everything about Ellen White. Oh, and what did your friend tell you? Well, we're glad you asked. And they pulled out something this high. Pages that they'd printed from the internet here. <clears throat> I said, well, why don't we just go through it together? You want to do that? I didn't know what was in there. I had no idea. Well, sure. Well, let's start. We don't have all day, but let's start. And so the first one was where Ellen White said, you should never say you're saved. I think that's in Christ's subject lessons, page 157. Might be wrong, but I think that's right. I said, oh, this is a good one. Just a moment. I ran to the pastor's office and got the book. I brought the book back. I said, read the paragraph. And they said, oh, she's not, she's not saying that at all, is she? No, she's not saying that at all. Let's go to the next one. The next one was patently false. I went to the next objection. And they said, forget about it. We're fine. We'll be baptized. Yeah. No, I didn't know what I was going to come up against, Dennis. I didn't know what was in there. Because there's some pretty creative stuff written about Ellen White. Um, but just take the objections head on. Look. If someone comes to you with a question about the state of the dead and proves that you are wrong in your position, thank the Lord. You can now leave the Adventist church and go join a church that's teaching you the truth. I mean, wouldn't you? Do you think that's going to happen, though? Our positions are rock solid, so we have nothing to fear. So you don't, you don't need to worry about getting into a discussion with people about the objections that they have. By the way, objections are either excuses or opportunities. They're either, well, I just want to say no and I don't know how, so I'm going to use this flimsy excuse. And when you 
see through that. I'll run to another one and I'll run to another one and it'll never end. Or I genuinely have an issue and I'm genuinely trying to resolve it. So objections are your friends. It helps you see what people are, are thinking. There are two kinds of people that worry me. People who believe nothing you tell them and people who believe everything you tell them. At least people with objections aren't falling into the second category and I fear them more than I fear the first. If you're faithfully sharing the truth filled Bible messages contained in the Word of God, expect that people will have questions. Jesus encountered objections. Objections are often the way that people overcome um, issues, hassles, and get to a place of a trust relationship. You ought to be surprised if people didn't have objections. Someone's gone to church on Sunday for four decades, and you tell them Saturday, and they say, okay, you know, that's that's not even likely. That's not even likely. Uh, I've preached entire sermons on the state of the dead and had people shake my hand on the way out and say, Preacher, thank you for helping me see that my mother is in heaven tonight. I feel so glad about that. <laughs> yeah. What did I say? I'm racking my brains. I, oh. Some people check out, I suppose. Um, you can expect people to have objections. They should. They should have questions. So let's read on. Many a laborer fails in his or her work because he does not come close to those who most, help his, most need his help. With the Bible in hand, he should seek in a courteous manner to learn the objections which exist in the minds of those who are beginning to inquire what is truth. Carefully and tenderly should he lead and educate them as pupils in a school. Notice this, your success will not depend so much upon your knowledge and accomplishments as upon your ability to find your way to the heart. By being social and coming close to the people, you may turn the current of their thoughts more readily than by the most able discourse. So the work is really done when you get close to people and learn what's going on in their minds and address that in a kind way. Again, you've got nothing to fear. You've got the truth on your side. Of course, it's not always a question of fearing that you'll be proven wrong. You should never worry about that. The concern is whether that person will come across the line and choose to follow Jesus. Yeah. You know, something I've learned, my wife and I have done Bible studies together for about 30 some years. Great. And early on, <clears throat> there was fear there. Even though I knew the message, was, what is that one question comes up? That's right. So what we found in our years of studying is understand the objections before going in and build confidence. That's right. When you have the confidence, there's, there's no fear because the Bible does answer. Yes, it does. So really a lot of it has to do with preparation. I agree with that. It's interesting in, in preaching evangelistic sermons, you'll meet people at the door who will tell you, wow. I was going through that. Every time a question came up in my mind, you answered it. Every time a question came up in my mind, you answered it. And that's because you learn beforehand what the objections are likely to be and you address them as you go. You do that in your preaching, and I agree with you. You do that in your Bible studies, and you'll be way ahead of the curve. Answer people's objections before they ask them. That's, these are ways to overcome objections. Anticipate questions and weave them into your evangelistic presentations. After presenting the Bible's teachings on a subject, address common questions, such as, 
Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Most everybody has that question. Most everybody, in the United States at least. Anyone halfway conversant in the Bible, they are there. The thief on the cross, they want to know about that. When I preach about the state of the dead, I get to the end and say, I know what you're thinking. What about the rich man and Lazarus? I'll tell you that tomorrow night. And no, in fact, I do that maybe afterwards. Um, you've got to address it, otherwise they leave saying, but what about the rich man and Lazarus? What about that? Um, and again, again, you've got to know your place. We preached in one place, Eve, and the translator, when we got to the thief on the cross, made a mess of it. Because really, it's not a question that comes up in that culture. Uh, when we are in Mongolia recently, do you think I talked about the thief on the cross? Nah, they, half of them never even heard of the cross, let alone the thief on the cross. So some places you just don't need to. Don't feel like if you go to Nicaragua on a mission trip or Honduras or someplace, that you've got to preach to people as though they are Americans. Although, it's interesting to discover when we go overseas to places that some people have some pretty sophisticated questions about the Bible. Point being, know your audience so that you know ahead of time what you need to talk about and what you don't. When it comes to the Sabbath, people are going to be asking you about the Ten Commandments being nailed to the cross. Jesus didn't keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath was changed. You cannot know what day it was. These are questions that are going to come up. If you go on a Bible study with somebody and you not really sure what questions are likely to come up, ask someone. Ask the pastor. Ask someone in your congregation that has tons of Bible studies. Contact Eve. Ask us. And we'll help you with, uh, with that gladly. When it comes to the health message, Peter's dream. Peter declared all things clean. No. Peter's issue was that he was racist. That was Peter's problem. You can tell people another something interesting about that. If, if Everything about eating food and stuff changed at the cross. Why didn't Peter know? You'd think somebody would have told Peter. Peter, no, I'm not eating that. That is unclean. Um, it's a red herring, of course. It's not that which enters the body that matters. But you know, there in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus was talking about meaningless traditions. He was not talking about the menu. Jesus changed water into wine. <clears throat> yes, he did, but it was not fermented. And <clears throat> you can demonstrate that a hundred different ways. Wow. Six. <laughs> you will not be able to address every question in your sermon or Bible study due to time constraints. So focus on the most common. Again, I said yesterday, you're probably not going to deal with um, the witch of Endor, but you've dealt with two or three or four other objections. And so by the time somebody gets to the witch of Endor, Nine times out of ten, they'll say, I don't know, but it, it, it can't contradict everything else that we've studied. And along the way, you are going to want to tell your Bible students that they've got to go with the preponderance of evidence, the overwhelming weight of evidence. That's an important thing. So how do you overcome objections? Use a question box at your meetings when you're conducting meetings. Use that. That's very important. In fact, you want to use the question box to go back over key points in last night's subject, last night's, last night's presentation. You want to do that. Uh, or during question time, you can simply say, look, here are some common questions that come up. And so I want to just address this in case you have had this question. Again, as I mentioned yesterday with the 2300 days, people don't grasp it all straight away. 
They can't. They can't. Uh, you can't expect someone to leave your sermon on the state of the dead and, and have every objection settled in their mind. They can leave thinking, okay, the dead are asleep. And I've heard all that evidence, and I remember something about absent from the body didn't mean what the preacher said it meant. So go over some of that and nail it shut, because it's just not easy for a person to get out of their minds or the falsehoods that they've been exposed to over what would be a period of many years. Invite guests to place their questions in the question box at each evening's presentations. You want to do that. And then select a few from the box each evening and answer them. Don't feel obliged to answer any question that comes in. Some questions are a waste of time. Some are irrelevant. Some are clearly there just because someone's argumentative. Um, you're not under any obligation to answer the questions. You're just not. But answer those that help. Go through them beforehand. Select the most common ones, the ones that are the most relevant. Don't spend an hour answering questions. Just don't spend 5, 10, or 15 at the most minutes if you know people have a question but no one's put it in the question box, place the question in the box yourself. That is, if somebody out there has said to you, oh man, I'm, I'm struggling with absent from the body and it's not in there, that's a question. Put it in the question box and answer it because if that person has had it and it's a legitimate question, you can be certain other people are struggling or dealing with that question as well. The question box is your friend. Ways to overcome objections. Sometimes... Delay answering the question. There are cases when it's wiser to delay answering the question based on its subject. By the way, with the question box, you're at night three and someone says, what's the mark of the beast? Do you answer the question? No, you don't. You don't ever get out of sequence. You just don't. You know, it's nine nights into the meeting and you've got to know the Browns really well and so well you met them for Indian food and and, and, and you, you, they, they, they've invited you to their home already and they, they brought their collection of arrowheads to show you because they just thought you'd be really into it. And then they say, by the way, you can tell us, what's the mark of the beast? No. Yeah, that's right. No, that's right. Keep them, keep them hanging in there. We'll get to that. Be nice about it. You know we're going to get to that. Avoid answering questions on subjects you've not yet covered. There you go. Speaking in tongues. No, no, don't do that too soon. Antichrist. Don't do that too soon. The rapture. Oof, no. That's a great question. So good, I will be dedicating an entire hour to that topic coming up soon because it's so important. So hang in there with me and I will tell you much more in an hour than I could tell you now in just a two-minute answer. So that would be better for you and better for me as well. I brought up a question. Yes, sir. You brought up uh, the, the, the order. Yes. Uh, can you elaborate maybe quickly for two minutes about the rationale for the order that uh, we have in our series builder? That is an outstanding question. I, uh, let me get to that. We've got some other important material to cover. Stay tuned. Yeah. You can hang in there with me. hope you don't mind. <laughs> I've got a whole presentation about that. Tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. You'll find in the series builder or any series, the um, sermon order has been uh, carefully put together. You may not know that it's been carefully put together. 
And there are reasons for that. Now, I recall my first ever evangelistic series calling the evangelism coordinator and saying, oh man, I'm wrestling. I don't know whether to do this one 15 and that one 16 or that one 15 and this one 16. And he said, man, just make a decision. It's okay. It'll work out all right. Now, that's with 15 and 16. But when you begin a series of meetings, you, you want to accomplish certain things. You want to establish trust in the Bible and trust in you. And so you start there, and then you build. That's why we always start with either Daniel 2 or the signs of the times. I prefer to start with Daniel chapter 2, because it's prophetic. It's a little bit meaty for those who uh, are new to prophecy altogether. Signs of the times, I mean, what we, with respect, what we preach in the signs of the times is about the same as Billy Graham's been preaching for 50 years. I mean, with our own bent. Uh, so that's not new, new, but it's important, important. So we start and we build. You preach the law before you talk about the Sabbath, before you talk about the mark of the beast. Um, you talk about uh, death before you talk about the millennium, before you would talk about hell. You would do it probably in that order. Although, if you were wise about it, you could do millennium, death, and hell, but you've got to be careful not to raise too many questions. So the... The sermons build on top of each other and the appeals build on top of each other so that by the time you get down later in the seminar, you are in a logical sequence helping people to make decisions so that they're ready for the next decision and they're ready for the biggest decision. Um, people have got to have adequate information before they can move on to the next level of understanding in the Bible. So it's important to stick with the order. If you were going to dink around with it a little, little bit, you know, okay, maybe, but be careful with that. Keep your answers to guests' questions brief and easy to understand. Most of the time, less is more. Most of the time, you can get away with less time rather than more time. <clears throat> Objections or excuses? An objection is a legitimate question. An excuse is a mental attempt for where a person uh, tries to release themselves from what the Bible is asking them to do. And you can differentiate between them by asking diagnostic questions. For instance, so if this wasn't a problem, your job, your spouse, your whatever, you think you'd be able to see your way clear to keeping the Sabbath then? Oh, absolutely. Well, all right. Now you know what to deal with. Well, no, because then there's this other thing. And that's difficult. It's difficult. Evangelism is bittersweet. I'll tell you why in just a moment. You know, when you come to you know, the process of doing some folding, yes. and committing, mm -hmm. is it ever good to go on to another subject until you resolve that objection or concern? For example, you know, you're talking about the Sabbath. Now, in their mind, it's not necessarily clear you're trying to handle objection but it's still not clear to them do you move on to the next uh, subject or do you spend more time in prayer with them digging deeper to resolve this so you can go on to the next subject you kind of have to play that by ear you don't want to get bogged down for a period of weeks if and it depends upon the objection um if somebody says well wait a minute what are you trying to establish when you cover the, the Sabbath subject with somebody. 
you're not always, it's not always even appropriate to expect that that person's going to make a decision to keep the Sabbath and start working that out in their lives. That might take time. If somebody says, I see what you're saying, I see what the Bible says, Phew, man, I'm not sure I can do that yet. You've, you've kind of got them about where you want them. They see what the Bible says. They understand what you're saying. They get it. No, no, I'm not saying I disagree. You can't keep studying the Sabbath until they say, okay, that's it. I'm, I'm going to see the boss tomorrow. I'm going to quit my job. You know, that's too much too soon. But you want to get a person to the place where they say, I see it, I get it, I understand it, I don't argue with it. If they do have questions such as, well, um, what about, I don't know, what about in the New Testament where, I don't know, I don't even know what the objections would be. That's a tough one. That's a tough one because it doesn't even mean anything. You're chasing the wind with that. Um, if someone has a legitimate, spend long enough on the subject. You know, it's gonna, it, it must vary from person to person. I know sometimes I'll stop and I'll say, I understand that we have some areas that we've got to work in this particular with the Sabbath, but will you agree with me that we can move on to the next subject? Oh, sure. Kind of commitment there. Sure. Because there are times you just sit there and it's like, I, w- I wouldn't get bogged down. I wouldn't get bogged down for a couple of reasons. If someone's digging in the heels, the longer you stay, the deeper they dig their, them, themselves into their position. The other thing is this. If they have a question about the Sabbath and they're not sure, if you go on and study the state of the dead and they say, yes, hellfire, yes, health reform, yes, suddenly they're saying, yes, 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 and they realize this probably should be a yes as well. So that can be helpful. So my answer is, do not get bogged down. It just doesn't help. Be careful what it is you're looking for. You cover this. When I preach the Sabbath subject, I'm not looking for people to stand up and say, that's it, I'm keeping the Sabbath from now on. It's too new for that. You know, the next time we cover the subject, we might, might press a little further. So, yeah, don't get bogged down. Don't be afraid of moving on. Moving on can be a help to you. Uh, Every no answer is an excuse when they've said, yes, you found the real issue. That is, uh, if, if your wife was more agreeable, do you think you keep the Sabbath? Oh, no, no, I couldn't then. So you can see then this is somebody just, just making excuses and not looking to really arrive at a place. Feel, felt, found. If you're looking for the right words. You don't have to worry that, oh, I chose a wrong word. This person's never going to go to heaven. But you should be thinking about the science of persuasion. You should be thinking about the um, psychology of some of this. I understand how you feel. You're not the only one who has felt this way, or I felt the same way some time ago. And some of us, like me, we, we can remember that very clearly. But what I have found over and over again is that Jesus is able to give people victory in areas of their lives they might never have imagined could be possible. I know how you feel. I felt the same way. Here's what I found. You don't want to be telling people what's right and wrong. I hear what you're saying, but you're wrong. This is the truth. It doesn't help. 
I know how you feel. I have felt the same way. And here's what I found. That's a gentle way of moving people along in the process. And it is time tested. Attach the found statement to Jesus. Let a person see that Jesus and his way of life are the solutions that will lead them to victory in the struggle they're facing at that moment. And you can do that. Point to Christ as the answer, to Jesus as the help, to Jesus as the source of strength. Identify Jesus as the solution. Uh, Because really, we're not there to have people agree with us or to become disciples of us. We want to see people become disciples of Jesus Christ. If you don't know the answer to a question, don't make one up. Don't hem and haw. Don't get nervous. Don't worry they will think that you don't know your Bible very well. Don't worry about that. Instead, that is a great question. I'm glad you've asked. I'm not sure what the answer is. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go home tonight and study the Bible or study it out. And when we get back together, I will share with you what I have found. Easy. If you're honest, I don't have all the answers. I think people respect that. No one is expecting you to be the fountain of all wisdom. Nobody at all. That's a great question. Tell them that. Great question. You're happy about that question. I am glad you asked. You've done me a favor. You have really helped me by exposing my ignorance. (laughs) You have really helped me. That's a great question. I'm very glad you asked. I don't know what the answer is. You're a human. You're not a know-all. People are okay with that. I am going to find out. Your question is so valuable to me, I'm going to put in some effort and get to the bottom of this. I will take some time out of my busy schedule to look into something that is important to you. You've made a friend. You haven't lost any credibility. And when we get back together again, you've set up your next visit. And then when you come back, you can say, you asked me a great question last time. I, I spent some time looking into that. Here's what I found. You can't share with people things that can only be proved from the spirit of prophecy. We are Bible students after all. And, and, and I don't know when this might be tempting, but it might be. You have got to shun like the plague the temptation to dig into the spirit of prophecy to answer a question that somebody has. You, I don't expect you would do that, but there might be times depending upon the question, depending upon the question, where you would be tempted to do so. And you do not want to do that ever. Also, I don't think you help yourself when you say, well, this scholar said. That's, we, we criticize Roman Catholics for that, rightly so. We don't want to appeal to the church fathers. Uh, that is, you can, you can always bring supporting information, but if somebody says to you, what about the thief of the cross? And you say, well, Dr. Brown in his seminal work on the subject, stated thus and so. That person's not going to want to study with you again, and I don't blame them. There is no reason to fear objections or questions. Anticipate them, expect them, welcome them, and use them to lead souls closer and closer to Jesus. When someone goes to the doctor, the doctor says, what is wrong? And the person says, I have pancreatitis. The person says, I have acute myelogenous leukemia. The person says, I have 
this art, the widow maker, there's a 90% occlusion here, and there's two others that are 85% occluded. It's not the patient's job. The doctor starts prodding. Does it hurt when I press here? Yes. Does the doctor say, oh my goodness, my patient has a pain. The doctor says, oh good. Now I know there's a pain there. Does it hurt when you do this? No. Okay. The doctor asks diagnostic questions so she or he can get to the bottom of a patient's situation and help them find healing. That's what we do. And so when the patient says, oh, this business about the state of the dead, that hurts. Great. Now you know where to work, where to bring treatment to bring that person to a place of healing. Don't fear questions. By the way, you do know that not everybody you study the Bible with is going to accept what you have to say. And that can be discouraging. But don't be discouraged. When a gold miner traveled from the east to the west to chip away at a side of a mountain with his pick, he wasn't offended by the ore. He wasn't offended by the rock. He was happy about the rock. The more he chipped away, the more he knew he was getting closer to a seam of gold. So, you know, some people we study the Bible with, they're rock, but others are gold. And when you strike gold, chipping through all that rock was really, really worthwhile. Well, I'm just going to change gears here. Okay, calling for decisions. Question for you, what makes a great evangelist? Well, is it that she or he is an eloquent speaker? Great graphics, great graphics, sharply dressed, good handouts. Now, by the way, I discovered years ago we were just giving people too much stuff. So we give less. We still give handouts, but just not that boatload of material. I discovered in the end it became a liability because we'd be talking about baptism and someone would say, well, preacher, you gave me this whole big pile of stuff here that you said was important and I haven't read it yet, so I need to read that before I can make a decision. Objection or excuse? I think excuse, but maybe objection. That worked against me. Maybe what I should have said is, well, if I take that away from you now, how about that? What makes a great evangelist? Here's the answer. It's their ability to help people make decisions to follow Christ. I worked once at a hospital. And one of the hospital staff had single-handedly led 50 people to faith in Christ and baptism. 50. 50. Um, he was not a surgeon. He was not a hospital administrator. He was not a nurse. He was not a therapist. He was the gardener. He spent his days cutting grass, spreading mulch, fertilizing trees, trimming hedges, and leading people to Jesus. Fifty people. Did he have a giant intellect? My suspicion is that he probably did. I don't know that he was sharply dressed. I'll tell you what he could do, he could lead people to a decision. Wasn't manipulative. By the way, don't be manipulative. Don't be. Uh, sometimes it may not be easy to see the line between 
persuasiveness and manipulation. But if you ever feel like you're at the place where you could just manipulate a person to making a decision, don't. Uh, it will backfire on you sooner or later. And uh, very hard to imagine how God is honored by that. Elijah said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. And of course, Joshua spoke to the people and said, Choose ye this day whom ye will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. The sons of Levi did so. Today, people need to make decisions as well. It's important. As soul winners, our privilege is to encourage people to make decisions, and frankly, to make it as easy as possible for those people to make decisions. You know, again, like I, I spoke yesterday about making an altar call and some of the dynamics involved with that. I have a friend, uh, a former colleague, who he was a, he, he flew, uh, he was a fighter pilot for the, for the uh, Air Force in the United States. And um, I don't quite know exactly where he was in his journey, but he came to an evangelistic series. And an altar call was made. And he struggled. He knew he should go forward. And then he saw a seven-year-old girl go up. And he said, man, if she can do it, then I can do it. And he went up. He made a very good, very solid, very reasoned, very appropriate decision. But he needed encouragement. He needed encouragement. So when a person's making a decision, do all you can to make it as easy as possible for that person to make a decision. You really want to do that. Uh, it's a privilege God gives us to encourage people to make decisions. And frankly, it's our responsibility to help people to make the right decision. Evangelism, page 284, throw off all appearance of apathy and lead the people to think that there is life or death in these solemn questions, according as they shall receive or reject them. As you present testing truth, ask often, who is now willing as they have heard the words of God pointing out their duty to consecrate their heart and minds with all their affections to Christ Jesus. So how do people make decisions? I'll show you four steps. One, they need to have information. Two, conviction. Three, there needs to be desire. And then four, there needs to be action. So now let's look at these steps in some greater detail. Information, conviction, desire, action. You don't want to just give information as though you're performing a public service. When you go fishing, if you go fishing, you go fishing with a fishing rod and bait and a hook. If you just take bait and toss it into the pond, you're just going to end up with big fish. That's all you're going to end up with. We don't want just big fish. We want to haul them in. There's you and your Bible student, you and your partner. Your partner is praying. And your Bible student. But the great controversy is going on. And Satan is telling your Bible student, depending, of course, on where he or she is in the continuum, don't do this. 
Now, if you want to, you can just leave Satan to have at it, if you want to. Or you can say, as Christ's representative here, I am going to speak up and do what I can to counter the suggestions that Satan is making. So we'll get to some of this, I'm sure. We'll get to some of this. But when it comes to, well, let's walk through them step by step. Information. Good decisions are made with good information. If a person is misinformed or hasn't done sufficient research, poor decision is going to be uh, the result. Now, historically, we don't want for uh, information. We do okay as Seventh-day Adventists. We give good information because we have got really good information. So we are okay there. Eve, something is, oh no, it's gone away. Um, We've got light from the spirit of prophecy. We've got 150 plus years of research. We have scholars. We have the Biblical Research Institute. We have Andrews University. We have evangelists and Bible teachers down the years. Let me say this. Please be careful that you present true information. There's no need to make inaccurate claims about the Roman Catholic Church. There's just not. And if you're not sure what was written on the papal tiara, don't go there. It doesn't matter. You do not need to make inaccurate claims about the Roman Catholic Church. Um, You just don't. I remember when Ben Carson was running for president and CNN did a very large front page article about what Ben Carson believes, what his church teaches. Oh, man, I was worried about that. I don't know what they'd say about us. And I got in there and discovered that it was basically all accurate, although they had in there something that said Adventists don't go to funerals or weddings on Saturdays. Um, You know, I'm, I'm sure that's true for some Adventists, but there's a bunch of funerals or memorial services conducted on Sabbath. So that was wrong. It wasn't damaging or harmful, but it was wrong. Um... Please be sure that the information that you share is accurate. Shouldn't be hard for you to check that out. So information, we've got that. Eve, I think I've... Uh... No, maybe I'm good. See, you just needed to walk over. And, uh, I'm going to stay right here. It was, like, it was like Peter and Paul when their shadow rested on people. They were healed. Look at that. Just did some of that. Good decisions, good information. And we've got that. We've got lots of it. Conviction. Now, this is important. You can know when you speak with people that the Holy Spirit is at work and pray that the Holy Spirit would work. You can do that. Once there's been sufficient information shared, the Holy Spirit works to convict the person that something must be done. It's like when Peter preached at Pentecost. They said, men and brethren, what shall we do? God was at work, and conviction came, and they said, what do we do about this? I want to stay with conviction for a moment. You can help with that. You share the subject of the Sabbath. 
and you say, so Barbara, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? Uh, I don't know. I mean, what do you think God's will for your life would be when it comes to this subject? I don't know. What did Jesus do? We've looked at this. Can you tell me what it was Jesus did? Well, he kept the Sabbath. And, and what about Peter and James and John and all of them? Yeah, they did too. So what do you think God's will for you would be, Barbara? You ask a question like that and conviction's going to come. Well, something's going to come. Um, and you wouldn't necessarily do this too soon in the study, but you're going to get the place where you say, so would there be anything keeping you from keeping the Sabbath? Anything preventing you from keeping the Sabbath? No. You see that as God's will for your life. If you ask the right question, if you ask none of those questions and you just hope that, like the common cold, Barbara is just going to catch it because she did the Bible study, you're probably hoping for a little too much. Some, now, people are so fascinating. They're in such different places. There'll be folks who hear the subject on the Sabbath. They say, wow, wow, this is fantastic. We're going to do this. Great. I can't wait to go home and tell my husband. Wow. It's the best thing I've ever heard. Some people will say, you know, I always wondered about that. Others will say, what in the world? I've heard about you people. Uh, so don't be afraid. And look, I think Adventists generally, we're pretty cerebral, generally. You know? I always wonder when I speak in, in, in camp meeting. Who are these people sitting on the front two rows? If you were a real Adventist, you'd be sitting way in the back. Who are these people? You know what I mean, right? Adventist churches fill from the back to the front like Catholic churches do. Um, we don't want to get too close to the action. We, you know, we might get the Holy Ghost or something. We don't, we don't want that. And so my thinking is that when we get into studies, many of us, myself included, we might take a more cerebral approach without really wanting to invest ourselves in that and go for the heart. Studying the Bible with somebody is about going for the heart. Really going for the heart. What's going on inside their mind? Don't be afraid to ask those questions. It's, it, it's you making suggestions or the devil. And you know the devil's making plenty of them. The devil's saying, what about your job? What about your dad? What about your church? What will your neighbors think? What about the kids? You can't afford to do this. What a crazy person. You met someone like this once and they were mad. Uh, and you're going to sit there meekly and say, go, go for a devil. I'm just going to read through this Bible study and hope for the best. No, speak up. And seek to ask questions that arouse conviction in a person's mind. Questions that make them stop and think and consider and realize what God wants for them. That's, that's really important. And then desire. That's once conviction sets in, a person feels maybe, maybe uncomfortable, and they're going to do something to get rid of that discomfort. So now you want to help them to understand that doing the right thing is the way to get rid of that, that discomfort. Um, you might choose to use what is called the mini-max principle, 
when using this principle, you want to minimize the negative results of following Christ and maximize the positive results of surrendering to Jesus and yielding to the Word of God. Where was I? I've got to be careful. I, I... Oh, yeah. Last week, a young Muslim fellow was baptized where I was. That was really fantastic. And so, the kind man who was conducting the baptism, and he, he knew this young man while they'd studied together, he stood up before everybody and said, it's going to be rough. It's going to be hard. You are going to be attacked. You are going to wonder how you can possibly go on. I think if I'd been standing in the baptistry when the preacher said that, I would have said, ah, I'm changing my mind. What is that? Hold on. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You want to do that? Laura, if you keep the Sabbath, well, you said you're a nurse. They work seven days. You're going to have to lose, you'll lose your job. You said your husband's not a believer. I'm sure he'll leave you. Your children are going to think you're crazy. And your mother, you said she's in a nursing home. She'd probably die of a heart attack. But you should do the right thing, Laura. Now, let's say that she has told you she has a dear old mother who's been a faithful, holiness Pentecostal all her life. And she's got a husband who's slightly antagonistic. And she said she has job issues. And, you know, her children aren't kindly disposed towards religion. Accentuate the positive. Eliminate the negative. You don't want to be going on and on and on about how your life is going to go all down the drain now. That's the last thing you want to do. You want to be talking about, can you imagine the joy you're going to have in your life? How God would use you as an example. You've said that your husband doesn't really have any, any love for faith in God. Well, you certainly don't want somebody who's not into Christ to keep you from following Christ. And imagine how God, do you, think, do you think God might use you to reach your husband if he sees a faithful example in you? Do you think he might do that? I'm not promising you anything, but I'm certain God is trying to reach your husband. Remember Daniel, all this business about the dream and all that stuff in Daniel chapter 2. Uh, what was God trying to do? God was trying to reach Nebuchadnezzar. So, so you can know that God will use your situation to reach people. Now you've turned a negative into an absolute positive. And you want to think, you want to think about that. So how do people make decisions? Let's think about this principle of action. Once the first three decision-making steps have been taken, it's time to ask for a decision. Information, conviction, desire, desire. You don't want to be asking for a decision if the desire is not there. Who are you going to help by that? That's just not going to fly. But when the desire is there, why would you not ask for a decision? Why would you not? And so, what do we have here? Once the first three decision-making steps have been taken, you ask. Don't ask for a decision too early. Uh, our subject tonight, Eduardo, is we're going to study the this, this Sabbath. Oh, you ever heard about this? Yeah, Sunday. No, no, well, well, let's study through this together. Seventh day, Eduardo. Sunday. No, 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 read this. This is Saturday. Oh, oh, Eduardo, God wants you to keep the Sabbath.
Are you willing to surrender to Jesus on this important no uh, point now? And order your life after the example of Christ and his followers. Too soon. Too soon. But you get to the end of the study and, you, and you're seeing Eduardo say, Oh, oh, Saturday. Of course. My brother, my brother was right after all. You know, I thought he was crazy. But now I see in the Bible, he's absolutely right. Eduardo, what do you think? What would you like to do about this? What would you like to do about this? Well, now I need to think about this. All right. Well, I mean, this is the will of God. It is, Eduardo. So, so, so sound the person out, and then you can make a dis ask for a decision sooner, a little later, or much later. But do consider where that person is. Don't ask for a decision too early. And then we talk about the clear and set method. You know, when I go and visit people during an evangelistic meeting, hey, hey, enjoying these meetings, great. How do you find out about them? Whoever goes visiting with me, they're just sick of hearing me because I ask the same questions all the time. How do you find out about this meeting? Well, my, my brother told me. How did your brother know about it? Oh, he's a member of the church. How did you find out about these meetings? I found out about them at church. Well, then you've got to find out if the person's an Adventist or if the person's a, a what. Found out about them at church. How did you find out about these meetings? I got this thing in the mail. Got this thing in the mail. And then I will ask, have you ever attended a series of meetings like these? If they say, oh, yeah, we have met our church all the time, now you know you're dealing with an Adventist. Oh, yeah, I went to one like 11 years ago. Uh, this fellow, Vale. Steve? Yeah, that's the guy. Ah, so now you know they've already been through a series of Seventh-day Adventist meetings. What did you think of what you heard? Oh, I liked it. Now, somehow, you know, you're going to have to ascertain how they got to from liked it to didn't do it. But anyhow, I'll always ask someone, is this new to you? How did you hear about the meetings? You learn a lot by asking a couple of very simple questions. Is it clear to you? I want to ask that question. Is it clear to you? You have any questions about that? Was a, we talked about the Sabbath question. Was that new to you? No, no, I'd heard it all before. Yes, yes, I'd heard. Was it clear to you? Oh, yes, yeah, sure, clear as anything. And then, is there anything preventing you from? Now, there aren't many even, aren't even many subjects where you'd ask this. Is there anything preventing you from changing your view on what happens when a person dies? Wrong question. So really, I guess what we're aiming at is the Sabbath question here. Is there anything preventing you from, or baptism? Anything preventing you from being baptized? Anything preventing you from becoming part of the remnant church? Uh, so those are decisions that you would, you would look for when you are dealing with a person one-to-one. -one. I spoke about this yesterday, and so we'll do it again. From the pulpit, you can ask for a verbal decision. Are you with me tonight? Can we see that? Uh, do we agree with what the Bible says? Can you say amen? Amen. That's really easy. But keep in mind, people say amen on autopilot. They didn't really mean anything that they said it. Can you raise your hand with me? Uh, people raise their hand. That's okay. Most people are going to do what the flock is doing. Most are. Jesus referred to us as sheep, and we follow an awful lot. Most 
people will do what people around them are doing when you make it easy. You can ask people to stand. I'm a little, I'm a little, you do that early in the meeting on an easy question. You know, if you want to join the Seventh-day Adventist church, would you stand? That's tough. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't. Not that. I've done it. In fact, I did it once where a dear lady stood up and her husband reached up from behind her and pulled her back down. <laughs> yeah. But I'll tell you how that ended. That was, Ava came to three evangelistic meetings that I did. The first one was in the town where she lived. The second one was in a town 15 miles away. And that was where her husband reached up and pulled her down. The third one, I came back and at the beginning of the meeting, I was like, oh, Ava, you again. And she said, Pastor, I just want to tell you, I am being baptized and joining this church at the end of this meeting. I don't care what my husband says. And by now he got the message and, and this was going to happen. And so we did this thing where uh, right after the baptism, right after the baptism, our pastor invited the people to come up the front or stand. It's been many years now. And, uh, and this was done. And then while I'm sitting on the platform, I see Ava's husband, Bill, raise his hand. Oh, man. This is not good. My wife is, oh, praise the Lord. And I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, oh, not good. You know who has the most faith in our family? And, uh, and, and the pastor did something I would never have done. He said, uh, Bill? And he said, Pastor, if you don't mind, I'd like to come and say a few words. No way. No way. No way. And I'll never forget what he said. The pastor said, um, well, we know you, Bill. I remember him saying that. We know you, Bill. So, sure, come up and say a few words. Oh, my goodness. I've never seen this. I've heard about this, but I've never seen it. Now I'm going to see it with my own eyes. And Bill came up, and he took the microphone, and he <clears throat> cleared his throat. And he said, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, you know my wife, Ava, was baptized today. And you know that I've... I've attended church with her a few times over the last few months and I attended the series of meetings that John did and the last one. And If you would have me, yeah, never forget that. If you would have me, I'd like to become a part of your church family today as well. And so uh, here's the guy, the antagonist with the hard heart and the mean scowl on his face reaches up and grabs his wife pulls her back down into the seat. You will not stand up for Jesus. And, uh, and Bill became a member of the church as well. Fantastic. So standing calls, be careful how you make them. Card calls are great. It gives people privacy. It gives them privacy. I'm probably not going to tell you the story. We've got four minutes. We had a, a, a lady. Oh, the story's too good not to tell you. Anyway, lady asked Pastor Dave to come and study the Bible with her atheist husband, and so he did, and he thought that was a waste of time. But he went back the next week, didn't take his Bible. He went to talk about classical music. He went online and Googled classical music and read about it, so he'd have something to talk to this fellow about. The man was impressed with Pastor Dave's knowledge of classical music. So he went back every week to talk about classical music. One, one night at 2 or 3 in the morning, I don't know exactly when it was, Pastor Dave was awoken from his sleep with a strong impression, pray for Oscar. So he climbed out of bed so as not to disturb his wife, banged his 
knee on a piece, uh, shin on a piece of furniture and stood on a piece of Lego in the hallway. Man, that hurts. Anyone who prayed his heart out for Oscar, not really knowing why he was doing so. Uh, it was that night or the following morning that Oscar said to his wife, I had a dream last night. I dreamed of the second coming of Jesus. And she said, so what are you going to do about it? And he said, nothing. It was just a dream. When he had the dream a second time, he decided he would start coming to church just to be there, just to be there. 92 and an atheist. Uh, probably slightly less of an atheist now, but still an atheist. When the meetings came, Oscar agreed to accompany his wife to the meetings. And on the third night, we handed out a decision card. I choose to accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And Oscar's wife... Was... <laughs> and her eyes filled with tears. And when the meeting was over, she rushed to Pastor Dave. Pastor Dave, Pastor Dave. And Oscar came over on his walking stick and said, Pastor, what do I have to do to join the club? <laughs> I feel like if I'd asked a 92-year-old man who was an atheist to, make a, to, to stand up in front of a 700 people or 1,000 people or whatever it was, I don't know that he'd have done that. But the card gave him some privacy. Tell you how the story ended. Not too terribly long after that, Oscar was on hospice care. And he said to the hospice nurse, you've got a big red book at home, haven't you? And she said, yes, I do. He said, have you been reading it? No, you should be reading it. And she went home and looked around and found the big red book, which happened to be a Bible. How did Oscar know this? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe in the last weeks of his life, he was blessed with the gift of prophecy. I don't know. But perhaps he was just close to God. And she started reading the big red book, and after Oscar died, she began studying the Bible with Oscar's wife. I need to check in with Pastor Dave to see how that story's going. It's a fantastic story. So a card call. Make a card call. Altar call. Don't be afraid to make an altar call. Don't be afraid to make an altar call. I said this yesterday, so I won't go over it in great detail. If nobody comes forward, that's not your problem. You do your best. You pray. You ask. You invite. Make it easy. Have everybody stand up before you make the altar call. Have them all stand up. I want everybody to stand. Please stand wherever you are. That's right. No, no, I mean you as well. Thank you. Please stand. And people stand. By now the music is playing. Tonight I'd like to do something special. I want to make a special invitation. Listen very carefully. I've made altar calls where I have turned people back. No, no, not you. I want you to remain standing and pray. This is where for some reason it must have been with what I said. Some of the saints got confused and soon we were going to have a stampede. I wasn't looking for that. I was looking for people to give their hearts to Christ for the first time. Um, but you learn from your mistakes. I guess I made one. Or you can make a combination call. You know, I've, I, I've, I've not done this for 18 years. But you can have people fill out a card and bring their card to the front. Not quite sure what that accomplishes, but maybe it gets them used to coming to the front. Uh, you can have people raise their hand and then stand. You can do that. You can make a combination of these. It has been said, and I think accurately, any appeal used exclusively is a poor appeal. Uh, when you're calling for decisions from the pulpit, alternate the kinds of appeal that you use. Start with easy appeals. You know, really, I remember on night three talking about salvation and making an altar call. <sighs> Way too soon. I know where I got that idea. Um, but I... 
I didn't dream it up. In evangelism, I love innovation. I love it when you innovate, and I learn from the success or failure of your innovation. That's the kind of innovation I like. Begin with the softer appeals, the sort of things like uh, verbal decisions or raising hands, and progress toward card and altar calls for the bigger decisions. All right, let's pray. If you have questions, you can stay behind, but those who need to go to whatever's happening next can do that. Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have privileged us with this wonderful opportunity to be emissaries of the gospel, your ambassadors, your people. And so, Lord, we are praying for your blessing, that you would make us as effective as we can possibly be. We love you and thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.